Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. There are victims. Of this Berlin airlift, 31 American boys were killed. The city was short of coal, food, particularly milk. Babies were dying. The Russians are good at propaganda, so they sent word that they would send milk for the babies to the people of Berlin and that part of Germany that was blockaded. And the Germans, I'm happy to say, refused. You know, it's actually kind of amazing if you think about it. The first conflict of the Cold War, more precisely, the event that triggered the Cold War, set the style of every Soviet-American flashpoint for the next 43 years. That same dynamic, that familiar series of steps, virtually every one of them on the part of the Soviet Union, testing American resolve all across the world, like water running downhill, seeking to fill any cracks in the rocks along the way. In part one of this series, we looked at several possible start dates for the apocalypse that never was. The likeliest candidate, and the one I think that set the stage for everything that was to follow, was June 29, 1948, when the Soviets blockaded passage to the city of Berlin. After three years of rapidly eroding cooperation between the former World War II allies, three years of complaints, broken promises, threats, and counter-threats, this was the first time that actual force had been used. This first crisis, the Berlin blockade, set the stage for everything that was to follow because while the Soviets had blocked access to Berlin, no shots had actually been fired and none would be fired between Russians and Americans for the next 43 years of this strange new kind of war called the Cold War. The only answer to communism is a massive offensive for communism freedom. must be a system of international control and conformity. You and I have a rendezvous with death. Never give in. Never, never, never. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Eisenhower delivers a nationwide television radio speech on the Berlin situation. Let's begin with a brief review of recent history. The Allied powers, including the Soviet Union, signed agreements defining the areas of occupation in Germany and Berlin, which they would assume. As a result, Germany and the city of Berlin were each divided into four zones, occupied by American, British, French, 
and Soviet troops, respectively. Now, the Berlin crisis is impossible to understand without a bit of geography, and a very unlikely geography it was indeed. In the closing days of World War II, the British, Russian, and American allies had agreed to divide Germany into four pieces of occupation. Three of those pieces were almost precisely the same area, with a fourth somewhat smaller zone set aside for the French. If you can imagine a capital letter Y being stamped down on Germany, then Russia would hold the right arm of the Y in the northeast, Britain would hold the left arm in the northwest, and America would hold the base of the Y towards the south. West of the Americans and south of the British would be a smaller French sector. The city of Berlin, too, would be divided into four zones of occupation, with the same basic pattern of Russia in the east, Britain in the northwest, and America in the southwest. But in Berlin, the French zone was not west of the American and British zones completely out of contact with Russia, but rather nestled north of the city between Britain and the Soviet Union. Now, that all sounds a bit complicated, and it was. A country divided four ways, and the capital of that entire country also divided four ways. But that's not the tricky part. The tricky part is that Berlin, all four sectors of it, was entirely embedded deep inside the Russian zone of occupation. 100 miles across the border, due east from the British sector, sat Berlin, Germany in miniature, a city divided into four parts, and yet all four parts were 100 miles deep into the Russian zone of occupation. This bizarre arrangement meant that Berlin, all four sections of it, formed an island entirely surrounded by Soviet troops. Furthermore, the Russian sector in Berlin was almost as large as the French, British, and American sectors combined. With Britain, France, and America being capitalist democracies, you could, and very soon would, see Berlin divided not into quarters but into halves. And although it had not come into common usage at the beginning of the crisis, before it would be over, the former capital of Germany would be divided cleanly down the middle into what was to be soon called East Berlin and West Berlin. I don't know why, but I guess some people just say they really appreciate hearing it, and I guess it does mean something to some people. Now, look, I'm not talking about when the house is on fire. If you're really in trouble, you need things like a helpline or something like this. But this this is really kind of different and kind of important. Our friends over at BetterHelp have something that's kind of like defragging the hard drive. You know, all of those bad little scripts that run in the back of your head and slow you down and cause you all kinds of trouble. This is what this is about. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's a professional counseling service. It's done securely online, and there's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. So the system is available for clients worldwide. You can basically log into your account, talk to counselors, and get a sense of getting ahead of your problems instead of being behind them. As a person who's had suffered with all sorts of emotional issues in the years before I became the internationally famous celebrity I am today, uh, I can tell you that it's very lonely out there sometimes. But aside from the, the dark side, think about the upside. How many negative thoughts and how many negative impressions do you carry around with you every day? How many fears, false expectations accepted as real do you let rule your life? Well, your friends over at BetterHelp can help you find out, help you get some of these things out of your system. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Financial help is available, and BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit betterhelp.com slash saw. That's betterhelp.com slash S-A-W. And join the over 700,000 people 
people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Now, there's a special offer for the Cold War listeners. You get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash saw. During the three years between the surrender of Berlin in 1945, which marked the end of World War II in Europe, and the Soviet blockade of Berlin, which started World War III, the Cold War, in 1948, the situation between the Western Allies and the Soviet Union had deteriorated rapidly. By early 1948, East German border guards were slowing, delaying, and otherwise harassing Western military access to Berlin. There was an unwritten post-war agreement that allowed for a ground access corridor from west to east, a slender thread, one highway, and one rail line limited to 10 trains a day. But that ground corridor had been taken for granted as a Soviet courtesy, and the Soviets were not feeling so courteous as of late. However, post-war treaty terms guaranteed in writing an additional three air corridors, strictly defined narrow airways into and out of Berlin. The two Upper Berlin corridors, the Hamburg and Bukeberg corridors, connected Berlin with the British sector, while the southernmost one, the Frankfurt Air Corridor, allowed flight to and from the American sector. And while these air corridors were provided for by agreement, no such agreement was in place regarding surface travel, and therein lay the source of much mischief. When Stalin ordered that land access to Berlin be closed to Allied forces, it was simply the latest and most flagrant example of the unwillingness of the Soviet Union to abide by the terms of the agreements laid down at the Tehran Summit Conference in November of 1943, the Yalta Conference in February of 1945, and especially the Potsdam Conference in late July of 1945, more than two months after the war had ended in Germany. Although the big three nations had remained the same, the United States, Great Britain, and the Soviet Union, the cast had changed at Potsdam, where President Harry S. Truman had taken over from Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who had died from a massive stroke on April 12, 1945, less than a month before the German surrender. Winston Churchill had been a vocal opponent of the Soviet regime since its inception. Having served both on the trenches and the front lines, as well as being first Lord of the Admiralty, Churchill had been instrumental in British policies for the first half of World War I. When the Bolsheviks came to power and pulled Russia out of the war, both France and Britain suffered grievously as German troops were freed from the Russian front to add pressure to the Western trenches. Indeed, several countries, including Great Britain and the United States, had sent troops to support the ex-Tsarist or white Russian forces against the communist Red Army forged by Leon Trotsky. The eventual survival of the communist state had been a very, very near thing. The failure to strangle Bolshevism at its birth and to bring Russia, then prostrate by one means or another into the general democratic system, lies heavy upon us today. Churchill's repugnance regarding what he called the foul baboonery of Bolshevism brought on by a vile group of cosmopolitan fanatics would not soon be forgotten by the Russians. Actually, it would never be forgotten. And while it was true that Great Britain and the Soviet Union would become unlikely allies during the Second World War, Churchill always saw the Soviet Union in the same light. Quote, 
The policy I will always advocate is the overthrow and destruction of that criminal regime he had written in 1920, just after the First World War, to which he added, quote, I think the day will come when it will be recognized without doubt, not only on one side of the house, but throughout the civilized world, that the strangling of Bolshevism at its birth would have been an untold blessing to the human race, unquote. Now, that second quote came almost three decades after the first, in 1949, just after the Second World War had ended. But Roosevelt, cheery, avuncular FDR, who was conflict-averse and supremely confident of his own political abilities, had come to the Big Three table with a very different and much more dangerously naive view of things. Utterly convinced that he could handle that Stalin fellow, who he blithely referred to as Uncle Joe, President Roosevelt could only see the USSR as a bloodied and beaten nation of hardy peasants who nearly alone had taken on the Nazi war machine and forced it back into a concrete bunker in Berlin. It was Roosevelt, after all, not General Eisenhower, who had the power to determine whether or not U.S. armies would allow the Soviets to take Berlin. Ike may have proposed this act of naive generosity, but Roosevelt had approved it. Roosevelt did live long enough to see most of his illusions about Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Union shattered. Just before his death, he had sent increasingly bitter messages to Uncle Joe regarding Russia's refusal to honor agreements about Poland, prisoners of war, and a host of other transgressions. Harry Truman brought a clearer eye to who and what Stalin really was, but he too had difficulty understanding Stalin's constant transgressions up to and including this latest one, the closure of the land routes into Berlin. It just didn't make any sense. The Allies had been perfectly willing to share power with the Soviets after World War II and in general sympathized with Russia's horrific losses and its consequent desire to have a series of buffer states around its borders. Stalin, essentially, had already been given these things, including Berlin, Vienna, and the rest of the territory that was now behind this new Iron Curtain. Why risk war over something that he'd already achieved? This theme would be played out time and time again, from the Berlin blockade of 1948, right up until the election of a U.S. president who really did see the Russians for what they are 32 years later. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. The endless challenges, the saber-rattling, the subversion, the brinksmanship, none of it made any sense to the Western mind, with one exception. Now, many of you may not know this, but Esoteric Radio Theater headquarters is here in our giant Zeppelin, which floats over the city of Los Angeles. And as I'm speaking to you now, I'm in the control center. I've got my red leather couch with the brass tacks. But my favorite part of the room is this gigantic seven-foot-tall painting of myself and a smoking jacket with a fez, and I've got a pipe in one hand and Chaucer under the other. And it really does kind of tie the room together. Listen, seriously, though, if you ever thought the idea of having your portrait done was a good idea and you didn't want to spend a lot of money and six hours without moving a muscle, I have got the people for you. Paint Your Life will help you get an original oil painting of yourself or your children, your family, a special place, cherished pet, anything you can think of and at a price you can afford. They do it from photographs, but it is a real painting. It's not just a Photoshop effect. Makes a really great gift for birthdays or anniversaries, especially Valentine's Day. You get to choose the artist whose style you most admire, and you get to work with them throughout the process. Every detail is perfect, and there's no risk because if you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded. 
It's great for decor. As I say, it ties in the floating Zeppelin command center here very, very well, this picture of me. And I think you'll be very, very happy with yours too. It's different. You know, it's something different than just a photo on the wall. You get to choose the artist whose work you most admire and you work with them throughout the entire process until every detail is perfect. If you want to give a truly meaningful gift, you've got to try paintyourlife.com. So if this sounds good to you, and it certainly sounded good to me, here's what you can do right now as a limited time offer. You get 30% off of your painting. That's right, 30% off and free shipping. So to get the special offer, text the word COLD to 64000. That's C-O-L-D to 64000. Again, that's text COLD to 64000 and get that portrait started today. That exception hailed from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Two months after his birth in 1904, his mother died of peritonitis caused by a ruptured appendix. But this boy did not know that. He'd spent his childhood believing that his mother had died while giving birth to him, and throughout his youth, he had constantly lamented that he'd never had a mother or much of a father either for that matter. This boy would grow up knowing what it meant to fear the world. At the age of eight, he moved with his stepmother to Germany, the better, it appears, to learn the German language. He entered Princeton University in 1921 to study history, but the blue-blooded elitist he went to class with had little use for this shy and introverted nobody. He considered going on to get a law degree, but Princeton was too cold a place for him, even in summertime, as well as being too expensive, so he applied for a position in the newly formed United States Foreign Service. He would go on to become a career diplomat, being first posted to Switzerland, then back to Germany again, before being selected for a linguist training program. And so, in 1929, the 25-year-old from Milwaukee found himself in Berlin as Adolf Hitler's National Socialist Movement was finally starting to get some real traction. He began a program on Russian history, politics, culture, and language at the University of Berlin's Oriental Institute. He had a real head start here. His grandfather's younger cousin, also named George, had during the 19th century been a preeminent expert on Imperial Russia. The elder George, who had died in 1924, had been the author of Siberia and the Exile System, published in 1891. The Princeton grad would be present at the very first American embassy in the Soviet Union in 1933. From the beginning, he could see very little common ground between the country of his birth and that of his posting. He watched as Gingrich Yagoda, People's Commissar for Internal Affairs, otherwise known as the NKVD, had worked 20,000 political prisoners to death to build the White Sea Canal and supervise the arrest, show trials, and executions of many of the old Bolsheviks, comrades of Lenin, architects and engineers of the communist revolution, but now nothing more than potential political rivals for a man who brooked no rivals. He watched as Yagoda's NKVD had stripped bare the countryside, causing the death by starvation of some 10 million peasants, mostly in the Ukraine. That introspective boy who'd grown up without a mother continued to do what he'd always done, watch carefully but without comment, as Yagoda himself was finally tried and executed, begging for his life at the hand of his replacement as the new director of the secret police, Nikolai Yezhov. Young, handsome, but just under five feet tall, Yezhov had come from nowhere. A single pachinko ball that had fallen and bounced from pin to pin seemingly at random. 
before ending up as the second most powerful man in the Soviet Union. Yezhov had not been hired for his intellect. He'd only had an elementary school education. He wasn't big or imposing or a dynamic speaker. In fact, to look at him, you would think of him as unlikely looking a mass murderer as Heinrich Himmler, another banal cipher of a man, but one who shared with Nikolai Yezhov one absolutely indispensable trait. That essential quality was perhaps best described by the last and best loved of the old Bolsheviks, Nikolai Bukharin, whom Lenin himself had dubbed the darling of the party. Bukharin wrote, quote, In the whole of my life, I've had to meet few people who by their nature were as repellent as Yezhov. Watching him, I am frequently reminded of those evil boys from Rastroyayeva Street workshops whose favorite form of entertainment was to light a piece of paper tied to the tail of a cat drenched in kerosene and relish in watching the cat scamper down the street in maddening horror, unable to rid itself of the flames that are getting closer and closer. Yezhov, acting under direct orders from Stalin and only Stalin, amped up the general level of prevalent fear into a two-year period called the Great Terror. The man Stalin called his Blackberry began a purge not of foreign elements or criminals or even subversives, but of the Communist Party itself. Yezhov supervised the execution of his predecessor, Yagoda, and, when Stalin had finally tired of toying with him, of Bukharin as well. In the early days of the Great Terror, Yezhov's capacity for mass murder was extraordinary. It was Yezhov who personally designed the sloping floors on an NKVD execution cell near the Lubyanka, sloping floors being much easier to rinse the blood off of. And it wasn't just the scale of the mass murders that had so appalled the young American at the Moscow embassy. The method to it was utter madness as well. Mass executions were the result of a quota system. A small Russian city might be assigned a number, just something that felt about right, 20,000 human beings, let's say. Not 20,000 revolutionaries, virtually all of the people executed during the Yezovshina, the time of Yezhov, were completely innocent. Now, what Stalin was looking for was the death of 20,000 potential revolutionaries in one small city. People with relatives living abroad, people who could speak a foreign language, people with technical and medical degrees, people who'd not shown enough party spirit, people who'd shown too much party spirit, but mostly people who had been denounced, overheard laughing or cursing the Soviet system at drunken parties, and as often as not, people who were anonymously fingered by someone who had wanted their apartment, their job, or their wife. So like a firestorm, this nightmare began to feed on itself. If Comrade Stalin demanded 20,000 executions in one town, then the people responsible for those executions would not only execute 20,000, they would execute 35,000 as a show of their watchfulness, their devotion to duty, and their love of party. Somewhere between 680,000 and 1.2 million people were executed by the NKVD in the two years of the Great Terror. Stalin personally signed no less than 40,000 death warrants. After most of the heavy lifting had been done, Yezhov began to get the cold shoulder from Stalin, and the bloody dwarf, who would attend the occasional Politburo meeting with flecks of blood on his collar after a night of executions, had killed enough party members to know what that meant. 
Yezhov began to fall apart, drinking heavily on the job all day and more heavily during homosexual orgies all through the night. He was arrested, of course, and tried, of course, and convicted, of course, and yet, when he was told that he'd been sentenced to death, Yezhov fainted and had to be carried away to where he was stood in a small room with sloping floors where weeping and pleading for mercy like so many of his victims, he was shot in the head. Yezhov had proved to be a far greater monster than Yagoda, the monster he'd killed. But Yezhov had been shot by his successor, Leventry Beria, who, incredible though it may seem, would turn out to be an even greater monster than the bloody dwarf had been. Beria's name will come up again soon. The executions themselves have been secret, of course. Perhaps a million individual revolver shots in hundreds of basement torture chambers all across the Soviet Union. But what was not secret were the faces in family albums, faces that literally had to be erased with the end of a pencil so that the taint of such enemies of the people would not pass on to their mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, and sons and daughters. The act of execution was done in the dark, but the effect of one million people disappearing into the night was not something that could be kept secret, nor was it intended to be. Because while many Westerners continued to doubt the stories of murder and torture, Lenin had called such influential Western intellectuals useful idiots. The message was understood with crystal clarity among the people who had waited breathlessly through the night for the sound of the Black Marias downstairs, for the sound of the creaking, torturously slow elevator to pass their floor so that they could grab a few hours of sleep before it would begin again at the next sunset. Those people... Soviet citizens knew perfectly well that the gun barrels of the state executioners had been trained on them, the survivors, all along. They knew what had happened to their loved ones, and they knew what would happen to them should they harbor the slightest anti-party inclinations, and that was all that really mattered. Adoring left-wing Western intellectuals would nominate one of the greatest mass murderers in history, Joseph Stalin, for the Nobel Peace Prize in 1945 and again in 1948, the year Stalin set off the Cold War by closing road access to Berlin. And so, through all of it, the leaders of the United States could simply never come to grips with what Stalin and his Soviet state really was. It was just beyond their imagination, with one notable exception. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The boy, who was born in Milwaukee, grew up in Germany, studied at Princeton, and was present at the first American embassy in the Soviet Union. That exception was the deputy chief of the American embassy in Moscow, George Kennan, and he knew exactly who Stalin was and what his Soviet Union represented. And George Kennan, alone or so it seems, was screaming louder and louder to a State Department that had not the slightest interest in what he had to say. 
If the State Department was determined to ignore George Kennan's advice, the Treasury Department was not. In April of 1946, one year after the end of the last war and two years before the start of the next one, Treasury sent a more or less routine request to the deputy head of the American mission in Moscow. Treasury officials were deeply puzzled by the Soviet Union's reluctance to endorse the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, both of which had been outlined and agreed to by all parties in the months immediately before and immediately after the surrender of Nazi Germany. With post-war cooperation supposedly in full swing, could anyone at the embassy offer any insight as to why Stalin seemed to be dragging his heels on, if not completely abandoning, projects he had cheerfully agreed to only months before? George Kennan's response to the question of what was going on in Russia became known as the Long Telegram, and it should have been taught in every American high school from its transmission on February 22, 1946. The long telegram was so comprehensive in scope and so astonishingly accurate in terms of prediction that it is hard to believe it was written at the beginning of the Cold War as a warning rather than at the end of it as a textbook. Kennan wrote the history before it even happened. George Kennan alone put into words every single motivation that would drive the Soviet side of the Cold War for four decades and much more incredibly he would describe with amazing precision how the Soviets would go about achieving their goals and what tools they would use to do so. You know, the desire to simply read all 5,500 words in the long telegram is almost overpowering. It's that profoundly important. But I will let you hear some of it, heavily edited for brevity by yours truly, because unlike many of the deaf ears that the long telegram fell upon in 1946, the sound of Kennan's voice in your own ears will bring clarity to so many things that have already happened. Incoming telegram, Moscow via War Office, dated February 22, 1946, received 3.52 p.m. Secret, Secretary of State, Washington, 5.11, February 22, 9 p.m. Answer to Departments 284, February 13, involves questions so intricate so delicate, so strange to our form of thought, and so important to analysis of our international environment that I cannot compress answers into a single brief message without yielding to what I feel would be dangerous degree of oversimplification. I apologize in advance for this burdening of telegraphic channel, but questions involved are of such urgent importance, particularly in view of recent events, that our answers to them, if they deserve attention at all, seem to me to deserve it at once. Part 1. Basic Features of Post-War Soviet Outlook as Put Forward by Official Propaganda Machine A. USSR still lives in antagonistic capitalist encirclement with which, in the long run, there can be no permanent peaceful coexistence. As stated by Stalin in 1927 to a delegation of American workers, in course of further development of international revolution, there will emerge two centers of world significance, a socialist center drawing to itself the countries which tend toward socialism and a capitalist center drawing to itself the countries that incline toward capitalism. Battle between these two centers for command of world economy will decide fate of capitalism and of communism in entire world. So, right off the bat, Kennan gets to the heart of what would go on to cause 40 years of Cold War, 
While the West was willing to cooperate with, trade with, and generally tolerate communist states, communism saw the future as a zero-sum game. In other words, while the West was prepared to negotiate a compromise with the East, the East saw compromise as literally impossible. There could be no cooperation between capitalism and communism. Each one would inhibit the implementation of the other. George Kennan saw what was right in front of everyone's noses. The Soviets were not willing to risk war with the West. The Soviets were already at war with the West, and this would continue until only one system remained. This fundamental understanding took nearly 30 years for it to really sink into the American mind. It's a testament to this nation's underlying strength and also to communism's underlying weakness that America could hold its own for three decades in a war that the Soviets had always considered a fight to the finish. George Kennan was far from an American jingoist, however. He'd spent enough time in Russia to understand their legitimate concerns. At bottom of Kremlin's neurotic view of world affairs is traditional and instinctive Russian sense of insecurity. Originally, this was insecurity of a peaceful agricultural people trying to live on vast exposed plain in neighborhood of fierce nomadic peoples. For this reason, they have always feared foreign penetration feared direct contact between Western world and their own, feared what would happen if Russians learned truth about world without, or if foreigners learned truth about world within. You see, unlike virtually every other Western observer, Kennan could see the criminal motives that the Soviet state brought to these beliefs. In the name of Marxism, they sacrificed every single ethical value in their methods and tactics. Today, they cannot dispense with it. It is fig leaf of their moral and intellectual respectability. In atmosphere of oriental secretiveness and conspiracy, which pervades this government, possibilities for distorting or poisoning sources and currents of information are infinite. The very disrespect of Russians for objective truth, indeed, their disbelief in its existence, leads them to view all stated facts as instruments for furtherance of one ulterior purpose or another. Here, there is ample scope for the type of subtle intrigue at which Russians are past masters. George Kennan understood what the Soviet Union was. And because he understood them so well, he was able to predict with uncanny accuracy what their Cold War strategy would be. Intensive military industrialization, maximum development of armed forces, great displays to impress outsiders, continued secretiveness about internal matters designed to conceal weaknesses and to keep opponents in dark. Kennan also had an opinion about the Soviet reaction to the newly minted United Nations, that great Western ideal of peaceful coexistence, born from the ashes of the most horrific war in human history. Moscow sees in the United Nations not the mechanism for a permanent and stable world society, founded on mutual interest and aim of all nations, but an arena in which its strategic aims can be favorably pursued. But if at any time they come to the conclusion that it is serving to embarrass or frustrate their aims for power expansion, they will not hesitate to abandon the United Nations. Moscow has no abstract devotion to the United Nations ideals. Its attitude to that organization will remain essentially pragmatic and tactical. With respect to cultural collaboration, 
lip service will likewise be rendered to desirability of deepening cultural contacts between peoples, but this will not, in practice, be interpreted in any way which could weaken security position of Soviet peoples. Actual manifestations of Soviet policy in this respect will be restricted to arid channels of closely shepherded official visits and functions, with superabundance of vodka and speeches and dearth of permanent effects. George Kennan suspected that the atomic bomb could, and most likely would, deter the Soviets from open warfare in Europe. And that was all everyone on the western side of the Iron Curtain really seemed to care about. But the Princeton grad from Milwaukee had been begging the State Department to recognize that this is not where the real danger lurked. The major strategic goal of the Soviet Union is to undermine the political and strategic potential of the Western powers. Efforts will be made in such countries to disrupt national self-confidence, to hamstring measures of national defense, to increase social and industrial unrest, to stimulate all forms of disunity. All persons with grievances, whether economic or racial, will be urged to seek redress not in mediation and compromise, but in defiant, violent struggle for destruction of other elements of society. Here, poor will be set against rich, black against white, young against old, newcomers against established residents, etc. Where suspicions exist, they will be fanned, where not, ignited. Just let me know if any of this sounds familiar. Not as history from the long past 20th century, but as current events today in the 21st century. Soviet power is impervious to the logic of reason, and it is highly sensitive to the logic of force. For this reason, it can easily withdraw, and usually does when strong resistance is encountered at any point. Thus, if the adversary has sufficient force and makes clear his readiness to use it, he rarely has to do so. So essentially George Kennan is saying that the Soviets would try to get away with whatever they could get away with. But a determined effort to deny them would almost certainly succeed. But defeating them would require more than just military power. It would ultimately depend on something far more ephemeral and far more important. Much depends on health and vigor of our own society. World communism is like malignant parasite, which feeds only on diseased tissue. Every courageous and incisive measure to solve internal problems of our own society, to improve self-confidence, discipline, morale, and community spirit of our own people, is a diplomatic victory over Moscow worth a thousand diplomatic notes and joint communiques. Finally, we must have courage and self-confidence to cling to our own methods and conceptions of human society. After all, the greatest danger that can befall us in coping with this problem of Soviet communism is that we shall allow ourselves to become like those with whom we are coping. Canon. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. To Western eyes, the closure of the Berlin Ground Corridor was a senseless act of provocation. But George Kennan knew two years before the fact that Soviet provocation would not end until the Soviet Union was master of the world or lay in ashes at its feet. 
Here lay the understanding of the Berlin blockade and just about everything that followed afterwards. The Western powers were not at war with their Soviet allies in 1948, but those Soviet allies were at war with them. Kennan had opened his long telegram by stating that the Russians saw this conflict as a zero-sum game. That meant that the Soviets would cooperate with the West when it was in their interest to do so, when cooperation in their estimation was a means toward the end of absolute victory, and they would stop cooperating with and eventually hinder the West when cooperation was no longer in their interest. Now, the recovery and economic development of the western half of defeated Germany, the German territory occupied by the British, the French, and the Americans, was far outstripping development in eastern Germany, which was administered by the Soviets. As this gap grew ever wider, the western powers announced their intention to form an independent state called West Germany. The Soviets protested, and not without grounds, that this was a violation of the Potsdam Agreement, despite the obvious fact that the Russians had been violating agreements with the Allies well before World War II had ended. So the Soviets ordered their East German client state to close the ground corridor linking Berlin with what was to become West Germany. Now here was precisely the kind of action predicted by Kennan. He had been clear that the only counter to these kind of aggressive acts was to stare them down, to show Stalin that there were indeed things that the West was still ready to fight for. And that is how the Gainsmanship episode known as the Berlin Airlift was born. Now, closing a border on the ground meant stopping a truck. No one had been hurt and no property had been destroyed. Was that enough to start a shooting war? Well, apparently not. But to close down an airway meant shooting down an airplane, and that almost certainly would have brought about a shooting war, and a shooting war with the United States Air Force, with scores of atomic bombs and the means to deliver them. And so, as with Korea, the Cuban Missile Crisis, Vietnam, the space race, Reykjavik, and many other subconflicts, the Berlin blockade became the first, but certainly not the last, battle of wills during the four decades of the Cold War. So, the West now faced a choice. Was Berlin worth fighting for? People at the time asked if America was willing to trade Berlin for Boston. Would the American people tolerate more of their sons and fathers dying to protect what had been the thoroughly despised capital of the late Adolf Hitler from their former Russian allies? Hardly anyone thought Berlin would be worth such a price. But here, right in front of Harry Truman's eyes, was the conundrum. While both sides were prepared to fight World War III, neither side was willing to start it. Although far less influential than it is today, the court of public opinion still ruled this conflict, and the first one to open fire and turn the Cold War hot would be at a terrible political, economic, and moral disadvantage in the court of public opinion worldwide. It seemed clear to Truman and everyone else that forcing the border would start a shooting war. So would shooting down a Western aircraft. But that gave the United States an unanticipated option. Joseph Stalin had shown his willingness to lower a gate on a highway. Would he be willing to shoot an Allied aircraft out of one of the three Berlin air corridors? Truman was convinced that to lose Berlin without a fight meant the loss of all of Germany, and that was unacceptable. The Soviets hoped to starve out West Berlin by cutting off supplies by land. But what if West Berlin could be supplied by air? Which meant, in the final analysis, what if Joseph Stalin was bluffing? 
Truman decided to find out. Should the Russians open fire on unarmed transports, the shooting war option would still be on the table. But if he didn't, then what? What weird, unheard of war that was not a war would that produce? Operation Vittles, as it would be known, was by far the largest logistical challenge in human history up to that time. Stalingrad had been lost to the Germans because the Luftwaffe could not deliver on its promise to supply the encircled 6th Army by air. There were roughly 250,000 men, a quarter million soldiers, in the German 6th Army. But Berlin, by contrast, had 2 million civilians to feed every day. That number was eight times that of the 6th Army at Stalingrad. Additionally, there were 8,973 American, 7,606 British, and 6,100 French military personnel in Berlin as well. The United States Air Force was by far the most capable in the world, and there would be support from other allied nations too. At the beginning of the blockade, Berlin had 35 days worth of food on hand and about 45 days worth of coal. American planners had allowed for a 2,000-calorie-a-day diet. That's generous, especially when compared to the 300-odd calories a day that was given to prisoners in the Soviet gulag camps. That came out to the following. 646 tons of flour and wheat, 125 tons of cereal, 64 tons of fat, 109 tons of meat and fish, 180 tons of dehydrated potatoes, 180 tons of sugar, 11 tons of coffee, 19 tons of powdered milk, 5 tons of whole milk for children, 3 tons of fresh yeast for baking, 144 tons of dehydrated vegetables, 38 tons of salt, and 10 tons of cheese plus... 3,475 tons of coal, diesel, and gasoline. That wasn't per month. That was per day. So on June 26, 1948, supplies began to be airlifted into Berlin. The Soviets, it seemed, were not prepared to start a shooting war by shooting down unarmed cargo aircraft flying within the specified corridors that the Soviets had agreed to in writing. Of course, Stalin didn't foresee any need to shoot down these cargo transports. During the first week of the airlift, Western aircraft delivered a mere 90 of the 5,000 tons per day needed to keep Berlin fed and heated. East German newspapers mocked the entire efforts as, quote, the futile attempts of the Americans to save face and maintain their untenable position in Berlin, unquote. Utterly convinced that the airlift would fail, Stalin finalized plans for Soviet forces to occupy both East and West Berlin. But by week two, that 90 tons per day had grown to over 1,000 tons per day. That was better, but it was not enough, not nearly enough. In the early days of the Berlin airlift, transports would come and go using visual flight rules, essentially a first-come, first-served method of getting an enormous amount of airplanes into just a few airports. On August 13th, Air Force Major General William H. Tunner set out for West Berlin on a morale-boosting tour. He had planned to present an award to Lieutenant Paul Likens, an airlift pilot who had made the most flights into and out of Berlin. But clouds had descended all the way to the top of the buildings, and heavy rain virtually blinded the still primitive ground-based radar. As Tunner's aircraft continued to circle overhead, a brand new four-engine C-54 Skymaster crashed on approach. 
a second transport immediately behind it climbed above the fireball, then landed so hard that it burst all of the tires on its landing gear. Yet a third transport ground looped out of control while attempting to land on a runway that had been closed for repairs. Three crashes in about as many minutes caused the airport to close. An embarrassed General Tunner, commander of the Berlin Airlift, was still circling overhead, and he had to order every aircraft except his own out of the holding pattern and return to base without having delivered their cargo. August 13th became known as Black Friday. But Black Friday didn't mark the end of the Berlin Airlift. The lessons learned on that day were so well integrated that the real airlift could be said to have started on Black Friday. After Black Friday, Tunner took immediate action to increase the efficiency of the Berlin Airlift. He shortened the time and distance on the ladder as the stack of incoming airplanes was known. More precise instrument flight rules were to be enforced at all times. Incoming flights were now stacked a mere 500 feet above each other and separated by three minutes each. By the time the airlift hit its full stride, one transport would be landing over the heads of the wildly cheering West Berliners every 30 seconds. And Tunner was just warming up. He expedited the replacement of the C-47s, the twin-engine military version of the ubiquitous DC-3, with the newer four-engine C-54s. The C-54 could carry 10 tons of cargo against the C-47's three and a half tons. And even better, the relatively new tricycle landing gear meant that the C-54 sat flat on the runway and were far easier to load and unload than the older C-47, which had a sloping cargo deck to unload since the C-47 rested on its tail while it was on the ground. Now, getting the planes into Berlin was one problem. Getting them back out again was another. Tunner realized that crews were heading into the terminal for refreshments as their aircraft were being unloaded. This back and forth caused additional delays, so Tunner gave strict orders that all air crews had to remain in their airplanes at all times. Now to make up for this, jeeps were loaded with candy, cookies, sandwiches, and other supplies, and then driven out to the hungry air crews waiting in their aircraft. And what looked to be the biggest bottleneck, lack of manpower to unload the airplanes as quickly as possible, was solved by the West Berliners themselves. German civilians handled the heavy lifting, and as time went on, the unloading time for 10 tons of cargo dropped from about a half an hour to the record-setting time of 5 minutes and 45 seconds. Two months into the airlift, 1,500 flights landed in Berlin per day, bringing in 4,500 tons every 24 hours. By January, that number would reach the target of 5,000 tons per day. This did not make Joseph Stalin happy. And as the airlift continued, so did Soviet harassment. Russian fighters would roar over the cargo planes a mere 20 feet above the cockpit. Russian parachute drops were staged inside the tightly congested air corridors. High-intensity searchlights were used to try to blind Western pilots flying in by night. But none of it worked. The Soviets even offered free rations to anyone willing to migrate from west to east Berlin. Strangely, there were very few Germans willing to accept that gracious offer. 
the onset of a frozen, icy winter made flying and especially landing much more difficult. But the amount of cargo delivered did not decrease. As a matter of fact, it grew to 6,000 tons per day. Stalin slowly began to realize that he had made a very serious miscalculation. When he began the blockade, Stalin had assumed that the West's reaction would consist of a very strenuously worded letter as they had with all of his previous transgressions, and that would be about all. Joseph Stalin was not particularly sensitive to world opinion. He knew the blockade would cause universal outrage, but he was more than prepared to ride out that public relations storm until West Berlin fell to starvation. But by April 15th of 1949, the airlift had finally shifted into 24 hours a day overdrive. By April 21st, more supplies were being flown in by air than had been delivered by rail and roadway before the blockade had begun. This Western show of resolve after three years of backpedaling utterly baffled the Soviets. When American transport started bringing in an average of 90 tons of the 5,000 tons needed each day, Stalin had decided not to contest the airlift because it seemed utterly impossible that it could succeed. And he was right. When it began, it had been utterly impossible. But the West had tried it anyway, and in the process, they learned the scores of small steps necessary to make the impossible possible. Truman had called Stalin's bluff. Neither side was willing to start a full-fledged shooting war, and the show of American and Western resolve finally forced Stalin to face the cold, hard facts. The Berlin blockade had failed. After waiting for nearly a year for the Berliners to cave in and hand America a catastrophic humiliation and major strategic defeat, precisely the opposite had occurred. Every day, the amount of supplies had increased. By the end of April 1949, an unbelievable 9,000 tons was being flown into Berlin every single day. Every single day. Western logistical know-how was making a mockery of Joseph Stalin and his Soviet Union, and every single day, it seemed, the insult grew larger and larger. Stalin had bet correctly, as it turned out, that the West would not start an all-out war over the closure of the land corridor to Berlin. But now, Harry Truman, the Western Allies, the United States Air Force, and the citizens of West Berlin had turned his gambit completely on its head. Now the question was, would the Soviets be willing to start an all-out war in order to stop the Berlin airlift? Well, as it turned out, the answer was no. Stalin realized that it was time for the Soviets to throw in the towel. At midnight on May 12, 1949, East German border guards reopened the land route into Berlin. Enormous crowds had gathered at the airport to await the arrival of the first supply train. American General Lucius Clay, commander of the American sector, was cheered by ecstatic Berliners, saluted by 11,000 U.S. troops, and ended up with his own ticker tape parade in New York City. Supplies continued to be brought in by air for a few months more until Berlin had built up a comfortable surplus. The official end of the Berlin airlift occurred on September 30, 1949. Over the course of 321 days, 272,000 flights had landed in Berlin. Total mileage for the Berlin airlift was an astonishing 92 million miles. That's virtually the distance to the sun. 
the United States Air Force had delivered 1,783,573 tons of supplies. The British Royal Air Force delivered an additional 541,937 tons. The Australians delivered nearly 7,000 tons as well. 101 people, including 40 Britons and 31 Americans, had died making the Berlin airlift possible, the majority of them in non-flying accidents. Costing almost $500 million at the time, which is about five and a quarter billion dollars in today's money, the Berlin airlift marked the first Western victory in the Cold War. And the West won this battle of wills the same way it would go on to eventually win the war. Technological know-how, multinational cooperation, outside-the-box thinking, and a lot of plain, hard work. Harry Truman had stared Joseph Stalin dead in the eye, and Stalin had blinked. The Cold War, What We Saw, is written and presented by Bill Whittle. Produced by Robert Sterling, directed by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer is Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our associate producer is Katie Swinnerton. Post-production producer, Alex Singaro. Story producer, Jared Sachel. Edited by Matthew Scheller. Audio recorded by Mike Coromina. Original music and mixed by Kyle Perrin. Designed by Cynthia Angulo. The Cold War, What We Saw, is an esoteric radio theater production. Copyright, Esoteric Radio Theater 2020. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.